Hi, fellow fiends. That's right. It's Friday. So that means it's time for another episode of Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces. I'm your host, Cassie Opea. Don't forget that you can find new episodes every Friday where I'll be telling you about the creepiest cases and the spookiest spaces all over the world. You can also find bonus content every other Tuesday by subscribing to the podcast on Anchor, or you can subscribe to the Patreon as well. Also, if you're looking for some fun Halloween spooky scents, Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces does have its very own scent line at the Wiccan Fay shop over at pizzaandpigtails.com. You can also get your very own sticker or keychain by sending me a message. Um, you can do that through Facebook or Instagram, creepycases.spookyspaces. And make sure you're following along for all future news and updates and actually some content that isn't always on the podcast. Without further ado, let's get started on this week's episode. Now, I fully and 100% believe in and support standing up and fighting for what you believe in. And that's especially when it comes to just basic human rights. There should be absolutely no arguments as to what people deserve as their right. And we all deserve equality And it doesn't matter what skin color we are, what race, gender, sexual orientation, or even religion. And, of course, for some reason that I'll just never understand, there are still people out there who disagree. And there are people who fight against anyone who fights for, and some even go as far as to kill and murder And that's exactly what happened in this week's creepy case of Harry and Harriet Moore when their house exploded on December 25th, 1951. When it comes to Black activism, There are many whose efforts and successions aren't really talked about as much as others. And of course, we have those who are really well known, like Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and they did amazing things for the Black community and the civil rights movements. And there were so many more who stood up and fought for equality, and I wanted to touch base on two of those members today. And I actually chose this case because it wasn't actually that long ago that these things were happening. And they still do happen, not on a much, not on the same scale, but it actually just still baffles me that so many people can be against just equality and basic human and civil rights. Now, Harry Tyson Moore was born November 18, 1905 in Houston, Florida, and that's actually a tiny farming community in Suwannee County located in the Panhandle. 
whose father, Johnny, tended the water tanks for the Seaboard Airline Railroad, and he also ran a small store in front of their home. Now, when Harry was around nine years old, Johnny started having health problems, which claimed his life quickly, and he actually died the same year. Now, Harry's mother, Rosa, tried to support him on her own, working in the cotton fields and running the store on the weekends. But being a single mother is tough even nowadays, so you can only imagine how hard it was for a single mother who was also a person of color at this time. Now, just the next year, in 1915, Rosa made one of the most difficult choices a parent could ever make, and she actually sent Harry to live with one of his aunts in Daytona Beach. And the following year, he moved to Jacksonville with uh, three of his other aunts, but it, it proved to be quite influential on the young boy. Now, Jacksonville was a hub for African-American business and independence and intellectual achievements and culture. It had a large and vibrant community and a proud tradition of succeeding. Now, his aunts, Jesse, Adriana, and Maisie, two of whom were educators and one a nurse who shared a household, took the young Harry in and treated him like the son they never had. And they nurtured and encouraged his inquisitive ways and his love of learning. Now, in 1919, Harry returned to Suwannee County, where he enrolled in high school at Florida Memorial College, where he would spend the next four years excelling in all of his studies. And he was even nicknamed Doc by his classmates for his intelligence. Now, after graduating, Harry accepted a job in Cocoa, Florida, teaching fourth grade. During his first year there, he met Harriet Vida Sims, an attractive 23-year-old who had done some teaching herself, but at this time was selling insurance for the Atlanta Life Insurance Company, a major Black-owned business. Now, within a year, on Christmas Day in 1926, the couple was married. Hi, listeners. Are you a small or large business owner looking to draw in more customers? Maybe a freelance writer, recording, or visual artist looking to share your craft with more people? Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces now has ad space available. And with package tiers starting at just $10, it's a budget-friendly way to spread the word about your business, product, or craft with an internationally streaming podcast. For more details on how to get your ad on Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces, send me an email at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com. Now, Harriet Vida Sims was born June 19, 1902, in West Palm Beach, Florida. And I absolutely have to point out that I just love when names kind of work out the way that theirs did. Like Harry and Harriet, I think that's just so cute, and I don't know why, but I just, I've always just found it so adorable. And so I just had to point that out. Now, unlike only child Harry, 
Harriet hailed from a rather large family. Her father, David, was a wood lathe worker, and I couldn't really find anything for her mother, Annie, as far as career, but Harriet had two sisters and four brothers. And when she was young, her family relocated to Mims, Florida, which was a small citrus town outside of Titusville. And when she was younger, she actually spent her summers working with her father in Massillon, Ohio. Now, Harriet attended school at the Daytona Normal Industrial Institute, later graduating from Bethune-Cookman College, a historically black college in Daytona Beach with an Associate of Arts degree. And in 1924, she began teaching elementary in various schools across Florida. Now, the newlyweds moved in with Harriet's parents until they built their own house on an adjoining acre of land. And meanwhile, Harry had been promoted to principal of the Titusville Colored School that had fourth through ninth grade. And he actually taught ninth grade and supervised six other teachers. Now, Harry and Harriet welcomed their first daughter, Annie, in 1928. And when she was about six months old, Harriet went back to teaching and she took a position at the Mims Colored School. In 1930, they had a second baby girl, Juanita Evangeline. Both girls would actually go on, following in their parents' footsteps, to earn degrees at Bethune-Cookman College. In 1934, the Moores founded the Brevard County Chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. Harry steadily built it into a formidable organization across the state. Now, he originally kept his job as a teacher, working unpaid for the NAACP for over a decade, and he fought tirelessly for equal rights for Black Floridians by investigating lynchings, challenging barriers to voter registration, and advocating for equal pay for Black teachers in public schools despite segregation. Now, sadly, both Harry and Harriet were fired from their teaching jobs due to their activism, and at which point Harry became a paid organizer for the NAACP. Now, eventually, Harry was appointed executive secretary for the Florida chapter, and during his time in charge of the Florida branch, statewide membership grew to over 10,000 members in 63 different branches. In 1937, with the help of attorney Thurgood Marshall, Harry filed the first lawsuit in the South calling for black and white teacher salaries to be equal. Now, although it failed, it generated a dozen other federal lawsuits that eventually led to equal salaries. Now, after the 1944 Supreme Court declared all white primary elections unconstitutional in the Smith v. Albright lawsuit, the Moors, who were especially passionate about black voting rights, organized the Progressive Voters League of Florida. They helped register 31% of eligible black voters in Florida, which was over 116,000 people. Their work proved monumental, 
By the time of their deaths, Florida had the highest number of registered Black voters. Hey, fellow fiends. Have you ever wondered what it would smell like to walk through a dark and foggy cemetery at the witching hour? Or how about sitting in a dim, damp file locker pouring over the details of the creepiest true crime cases? Well, if you have, you're definitely one of my people, and you can now put those wonders to rest by heading over to pizzaandpigtails.com, clicking on the Wick and Fay link in the left-hand corner, and getting your hands on your very own Wick and Fay candle line. Now, if you're not into those scents, don't worry, you're still one of my people, but they also offer a wide range of fragrances, such as Bitch Slap Blue, Sunday Yummy Sunday, and Chill the Fuck Out. And with a wide variety of fragrances, you are bound to find something for everyone in the family. So what are you waiting for? Head on over pizzaandpigtails.com, click on the Wick and Fay, and don't forget to use the checkout code CREEPYSPOOKY to get 10% off your first order right now. Now, as some of us know, success is a risky proposition, especially as the Moors were coming into a situation in central Florida where there was a lot of Klan activity, and a lot of Klansmen held positions in government, and it was a tense time for civil rights. Now, Moor was willing to risk much more than his job. He became fully involved in anti-lynching efforts after three white men kidnapped 15-year-old Willie James Howard, bound him with ropes, and drowned him in the river for the quote-unquote crime of passing a note to a white girl in 1944. Now, I will say I understand that at this time, interracial couples were illegal. You weren't allowed to get married. You weren't even allowed to be together with someone of a different race. However, I still feel maybe let the judicial system worry about that and not just go around killing people for something, for doing something that you don't believe in. Now, Harry threw himself into the case and no one was arrested. No one was even tried. No one was convicted. And this spurred Harry to to effect change. He sent letters to Congress where he wrote, quote, We cannot afford to wait until the several states get trained or educated to the point where they can take effective action in such cases. Human life is too valuable for more experimenting of this kind. And the federal government must be empowered to take the necessary action for the protection of its citizens. His letters show a polite but persistent push for change. And his scholarly nature obscured the profound courage it took to stand up to the hostile forces around him in Florida. And those who knew him recall a quiet, soft-spoken man. Now, two years before his death in 1949, four young black men 
one being only 16 years old, were accused of raping Norma Paget, a white woman, and they're known as the Groveland Four. Now, Ernest Thomas, one of the men, fled the county and was killed by a posse. The other three suspects, Samuel Shepard, Walter Irvin, and 16-year-old Charles Greenlee, were arrested and taken to Lake County. While in custody, they were beaten and tortured, which led to two forced confessions. Now, following the arrests, a white mob of 400 people went to drag the men from jail, but Willis McCall had hidden them to protect them. And I'll tell you this now, that's probably one of the only good things that that man ever did. The mob went on a rampage across the city, burning buildings in the black district of town and actually murdering people by shooting into their homes and hundreds fled in terror. Now the three men were convicted by an all white jury and I'm sure you're as shocked as that as I was when I read it. The two white adults were sentenced to death while the young boy was sentenced to life in prison. And the case pinned Harry against Sheriff McCall, who was actually investigated numerous times in his career for misconduct related to race. Now, Harry was able to lead a successful campaign to overturn the men's convictions in 1951. The, Supre the Supreme Court actually granted the appeal and ordered a new trial. Now, when transporting two of the suspects, Walter Irvin and Samuel Shepard, to a pretrial hearing, McCall shot them, killing Shepard on the spot and critically injuring Irvin, who was then denied an ambulance because he was black. Now, while Irvin survived, he would then be sentenced to the death penalty once again, but this would later be commuted to life in prison. Now, Harry wrote to Governor Fuller Warren repeatedly, calling for Sheriff McCall's removal and an indictment for murder. But despite this, McCall went on to serve seven terms as sheriff. Now, Harry's involvement with the Groveland Four case, along with Moore's activism as a whole, put a target on the couple's backs. And Harry was even fired from his position with the NAACP. And while it was a severe blow, he still continued his commitment to activism work, only now it was done on an unpaid basis. And during the fall of 1951, Florida saw a large amount of religious and racial violence. Over a three-month period, multiple bombs had hit Carver Village in what were most likely attacks from the KKK. Now, more ruffled a lot of feathers. There was a large population in Florida that didn't want to see the type of change that he was a part of. And his mother, Rosa Moore, explained, I tried to get him to quit the NAACP, thinking something might happen to him someday. But he told me, I'm trying to do what I can to elevate the Negro race. Every advancement comes by the way of sacrifice. And if I sacrifice my life for health, I still think it is my duty for my race. Now Christmas night, 1951, Harry and Harriet Moore had presents still unopened. They had delayed the traditional festivities as they were waiting for their younger daughter, Evangeline, to arrive from Washington, D.C. They were just waiting so they could celebrate along with their other daughter, 
Now, this day also marked their 25th anniversary. Now, unfortunately, the celebration would be brought to an, an abrupt end when that night in their quiet home in the Centrus Groves of Mims, Florida, the African-American couple were fatal victims of a horrific terrorist attack by those who wanted to silence them. Hi, listeners. Are you a small or large business owner looking to draw in more customers? Maybe a freelance writer, recording, or visual artist looking to share your craft with more people? Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces now has ad space available. And with package tiers starting at just $10, it's a budget-friendly way to spread the word about your business, product, or craft with an internationally streaming podcast. For more details on how to get your ad on Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces, send me an email at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com. At 10.20 p.m., a blast tore through their home, splintering the floorboards, ceiling, and front porch. The explosion was so powerful, witnesses reported hearing it several miles away, and pamphlets pushing for voters' rights floated out of the house and onto the streets, remnants of a long fight for justice. Harry Moore had spent much of the last two decades fighting for equality for African Americans, much to the dismay of Florida's white supremacist. After the attack, Moore's mother and daughter knew that they would be unable to get an ambulance willing to transport a black victim, which may have saved their lives. So nearby relatives drove the wounded Harry and Harriet to the town of Sanford, which was more than 30 minutes away by a dark two-lane road bracketed by dense foliage. Now, sadly, Harry died shortly after arriving at the hospital, and Harriet remained hospitalized. Evangeline arrived at the train station the next day, and her parents weren't there, but she saw her aunts, uncles, and other family members, and she knew something was wrong. Now, her uncle told her what happened on the way to the hospital, and her world was never the same again. In the years before his death, Harry was increasingly a marked man, and he knew it. But he understood that a better way had to be made, and things needed to change in Florida. And more lynchings, as it had more lynchings per capita than any other state. Way to go, Florida. He was in the crosshairs of Florida's most violent and virulent racists. Harry's mother, Rosa, worried he'd be killed traveling around on roads where it was too dangerous to even use a restroom. He kept going because he knew that it was bigger than him. Harriet died from her injuries nine days later, one day after Harry's funeral. And in a bedside interview, she told a reporter, quote, There isn't much left to fight for. My home is wrecked. My children are grown up. They don't need me. Others can carry on. And Harriet adored her husband, Harry, and they spent years of facing the same threats together, and it was only fitting that she gave up hope when he died. 
Now, news of Moore's Christmas night death made headlines across the country. Former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt expressed her sadness. Now, Governor Warren called for a full investigation, which, really? And he clashed with the NAACP Executive Secretary Walter White, who accused the governor of not doing enough, claiming, quote, Warren has come to Florida to try to stir up strife, end quote. And he called him a hired Harlem hate monger. Now, in March of 1952, there was a fundraising gala in New York City, in New York City featuring the Ballad of Harry T. Moore, written by poet Langston Hughes. And a part of that ballad is, When will men, for sake of peace and for democracy, learn no bombs a man can make keep women and men and women from being free? And this he says, our Harry Moore, as from the grave he cries, no bomb can kill the dreams I hold, for freedom never dies. Now, the crime has never been definitively solved, despite commitments from FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover in the bombing's aftermath, and from Charlie Crist in the mid-2000s. After almost 70 years, the identity of the killer or killers may never be pinpointed, but those who have studied their lives are confident that the Moors were attacked by the KKK. Now, five investigations produced four suspects, and all were all all of them were high-ranking members of the KKK. Earl J. Brooklyn, Tillman H. Belvin, Joseph Cox, and Edward L. Spivey. Now, in the first investigation, there was evidence that Earl J. Brooklyn and Tillman H. Belvin asked for directions to the Moore's house not long before Christmas. They had floor plans, and they were actively recruiting people to go and murder the Moors. They also gave inconsistent statements the footprints that were found at the um, at the house were actually the same size as Belvin, and Belvin paid off his mortgage a few months before the attack. Now, both died of natural causes before the investigation was completed, so it was closed. Now, the second investigation, 1978, Spivey actually died in 1980 due to cancer, and he denied his involvement all the way to the end. Now, the late Joseph Cox, who actually committed suicide in 1952, was asked to provide evidence, and he was told that he was paid $5,000 to assist in the murder of the Moors, and that's what he paid his mortgage off with. Now, the third through fifth investigations didn't really bring about anything really new because all of the suspects had died, so all of the cases were closed due to the fact that they were all dead and there couldn't really be any more questioning. So no arrests were made. Now, there will clearly never be true justice for Harry and Harriet Moore or for their family. 
a couple who devoted their entire lives to civil rights and all they wanted was equality, which is all anyone deserves. And like I said before, I chose this case because if you think about it, the 50s, they seem like they were a long time ago and we romanticize the 40s and the 50s, but they weren't actually that long ago. So maybe just think about that when we're looking into our history. Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces with Cassiopeia is a Pizza and Pigtails production. All episodes researched, written, and edited by yours truly. You can find new episodes every Friday with bonus episodes coming out every other Tuesday on your favorite podcast listening platform. Be sure to follow along on Instagram and Facebook at creepycases.spookyspaces for all podcast news and updates. Don't forget to subscribe through the anchor.fm or the Patreon page for exclusive access to bonus content, early episode access, and thank you swag. And if you have a creepy case or a spooky space that you would like to hear featured on a future episode, send me an email at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com. <laughs>